What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. I am the Rebel Bitcoiner, Ansel Lindner. Today, I'm going to react to a podcast that Jeff Schneider was on with Mark Moss. Uh, and they talk about the financial system, the euro dollar market, uh, monetary theory, Bitcoin. Um, I know this is a Bitcoin podcast, but I've covered Jeff's Bitcoin uh, talking points on an earlier I think like two episodes ago on the feed, so you guys can go check that out. Um, but this one, I'm going to talk a little bit about his elasticity argument again. I've been accused of being a Jeff Schneider parrot. Uh, he is euro dollar centric. I incorporate the euro dollar into a broader framework that includes geopolitical theory and understanding Bitcoin from cryptography, uh, decentralization as well as Austrian economics, at least heavy Austrian economics, not completely, but, you know, kind of heavy on the Hayekian side of Austrian economics. So um, that's the framework I operate from. And so I'm not a Jeff Schneider parrot. I'm not a Peter Zion parrot. So th those are some other big names that will have similar ideas to me. But anyways... Uh, if you guys want to support this show, you can watch all of my other content. I'm on FedWatch every Tuesday at 3 p.m. That time might be a little bit flexible here in the future, but um, check out the Bitcoin Magazine YouTube channel. Find us, find me there. Also, their Rumble. I think they're on Rumble and maybe Odyssey and some other of these alternative uh, video platforms. So check out. Uh, Bitcoin, or not well, Bitcoin and Marcus, but uh, check out FedWatch there. And I have a Telegram channel now. I had a Discord server for a long time, and it's still going. Uh, and there's less talk on there in the bear market, obviously. Uh, but I wanted to try a Telegram channel to maybe do some live streams and to have, because uh, Telegram is a, a big community that's easily joined, you know, easily joined different things. And they can, you can have it on your phone. And I know the same thing goes for Discord, but there's just something a little bit more lightweight about Telegram that I really like. And so I'm using that. So check out my Telegram group. I'll link that down in the description. And I do live streams on there every day right now. And I'm going to try to keep that going uh, into the future. But, you know, uh, after my first 30 days, I might go five days a week instead of seven days a week, something like that. I also do a weekly newsletter on bitcoinandmarkets.com. That's free for everybody. If you go and sign up with your email, you'll get it right in your email box. About a 10-minute read, but it has commentary, price analysis, you know, kind of mining industry updates, uh, things of that nature. And I think it's a really good way to summarize what's happening in Bitcoin and get a kind of insider. I'm not really an insider or an expert. I, maybe I'm an expert now. I don't know. but. Um, kind of a long-term Bitcoiner perspective, but from, I would say, a kind of more of a free-thinking Bitcoin perspective. So anyways, uh, check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. And if you want to support me monetarily, you can do so there for $5 a month, a cost of a cup of coffee. You can become a member and you get all sorts of perks for that. So check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into this, this episode. And Jeff Schneider appeared on Mark Moss. Mark Moss, I it, it interviewed both of these guys for FedWatch before. 
They're both good guys, good quality men, good quality gentlemen. So I don't have anything against them. Like they're not scammers or anything like that. And Jeff is extremely versed in the euro dollar market. I would say he's the premier expert. I, I don't even know who else you would put in that category. Maybe Zoltan Posnar, but he's, I wouldn't even, he has a bias well, and he hasn't been right uh, recently. So Posnar came out with his Bretton Woods 3 thing that's just a total crock and kind of exposes him as uh, economic illiterate, in my opinion. Uh, but Jeff uh, has huge insight on this. So he is the expert. And Mark Moss is uh, an inflationist. I mean, I, I, use, I don't use that term derogatorily or as a pejorative, really. But it's, it's his thoughts, uh, like, you know, his thoughts are in line with most Bitcoiners out there and most macro people. So anyway, that, that's where they're both coming uh, at this conversation from. And I cut out a lot of it because it's an hour and six minutes. Uh, so I just have maybe 10, 15 minutes of their talking that I'm going to respond to. And let's go from there. I will link, obviously, to the original video down below. so You guys can check that out. Let's do this. Now, when you say the bank, the, the Fed gave bank reserves, which is not useful money, um, does it give them confidence? Is that an indirect benefit to the market? Does it give the banks confidence to loan more money out? It doesn't. I mean, it, it does for portfolio managers looking to buy stocks. It has absolutely no effect whatsoever on the actual banking system and credit creation. And this is, you know, quantitative easing is the most empirically tested program maybe in human history. It's been used over and over and over again, and the, the results are uniformly the same. They're just not what you hear on, on mainstream media. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. Just read the academic scholarship that's been written by the QE people themselves. Um, Bank of Japan, a number of studies that have shown quantitative easing has no effect in any of the three proposed channels that it's supposed to. The Federal Reserve studies, the same thing. The last study, I think, from the Fed, um, or maybe it was a, a researcher associated with the Fed, I forget, uh, just going off the top of my head, they said that a $600 billion QE program that targeted specifically U.S. Treasury buying, would we maybe should expect about 15 basis points of effect on the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Think about that. $600 billion in Treasury buying lowers the 10-year Treasury yield by 15 basis points. That's basically a rounding error if it's statistically significant at all. So what I'm saying is that quantitative easing has no effect on the real economy because it has no effect on banks. The banking system is constrained by its own uh, internal as well as external parameters that have been, doesn't matter what the Fed does. There's no, no amount of jawboning or psychological manipulation or you know the Fed being your best friend because it's buying bonds has been able to get banks in the US, in Europe, in Japan for 30 years out of the same rut. Credit creation does not correspond to bank reserves or Federal Reserve policies, which is the very lesson that Paul Volcker learned 40 years ago. Bank reserves just don't correspond. If banks want to do something, it doesn't matter if they have reserves or not. They'll create the liquidity to do it. It's really about the commercial banking system. So um, so if... if All right. So I'll add to that. Uh, I, I do agree with all of that. So reserves... They actually handicap the market. It's, it, 
if there is an effect, it's the opposite one that is claimed. Because treasuries, that's what they buy when they do QE. They buy treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Now, these are valuable things in the market. They have a utility in the financial system. That's why you can have negative coupons. You can have negative interest rates. But people still buy them because they have a utility. The banks can make money off these things by lending them out, rehypothecating them. You know, they, there was a study. I know Jeff Schneider did his own study, but there have been other studies out there about the average length of chains of collateral. So a treasury that's uh, repoed and then repledged and then repledged and then repledged. You know, who owns that treasury? How many people think they own it? Uh, Caitlin Long said it's about three times. Jeff Schneider said it's about six times. I've seen upwards of 14 times. So we don't know. Okay, but these things have utility. And just think, everybody in that chain is making the haircut, making the little fee on top of that. So there is utility for these things. And when the Fed buy, uh, quote unquote buys them, but really swaps them out for uh, reserves held at the Fed, these reserves are non-fungible forms of money. They don't, all they do, they're not, they're not even physical, right? They're not, there is nothing to them. They're just entries on a database, but they are non-fungible. They don't work the same way treasuries do. They don't work the same way that other assets do on a bank's balance sheet. They don't work the same way as cash. You can't buy a sandwich for reserves. And as Jeff said there, you, it has no effect on the bank's ability to lend money. That, that's where we go back to Richard Werner. And in this episode, um, Mark Moss actually did talk about Richard Werner a little bit. But um, there is no constraint whatsoever on their ability to create credit. From their balance sheet. So this reserve requirement, like people talk about fractional reserve banking, that there that's there's no such thing. Okay. When banks make loans, they don't go and look at their amount of reserves. They just make the loans. They just make the loans. And it just creates money out of thin air. That's where money is printed when a bank makes a loan. But when a bank makes a loan, right, there's two two sides to this equation. That's why we don't have fiat people. We do not have fiat money because when a bank creates a loan, they create a liability and asset for themselves and a liability and asset for the borrower. And those, those four entries can actually shift around in the financial system, okay? So you create an asset and a liability. So you don't have more money chasing fewer, yeah, more money chasing the same amount of goods. And what people would think it would be inflationary, right? Because what, you, what you're doing is you're creating a good asset at the same time that you're creating the currency units. There are two sides of the same coin, all right? And so you have more money, but it's chasing more goods now. That's why you don't have like an inflationary effect. But also um, you have to pay back that loan, right? And as you pay back that loan, you decrease the value of the asset, the the Asset side of the bank's balance sheet shrinks, so they have to continually make more lo more loans to keep a a consistent uh, balance sheet. 
And Jeff talks about this as being a distributed system of banks' balance sheets. And I think you can extend that uh, analogy further if you understand Bitcoin. And that is to say, uh, there is no proof of work. There is no distributed consensus in this in this uh, euro dollar system that is a distributed uh, network of balance sheets. There is no distributed consensus. So how do you keep consensus? Well, it's it's haphazard and it's all done through debt and commingling debt, intertwined debt, you know, credit default swaps, derivatives upon derivatives, these collateral chains, everybody is tied together. And it doesn't matter if, every, if we're in good times. It doesn't matter because people are good, good for it. Your counterparty, there's very low counterparty risk during good times. But during bad times, that's the problem is you don't have transparent ledger. And so you start treating others in this system. One bank will treat another bank with hesitancy. Maybe they'll charge them a higher fee. And people will see, whoa, you got, you got to pay a higher fee to that guy. Well, he must know something about you and about your balance sheet. I'm going to charge you higher. And then, they, then the, the third person's like, oh, well, I'm going to charge you even higher because these guys must know something and I'm coming late to the party and blah, 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 blah. And then what that bank, bank A that can't get the same rate now uh, owns or owes money to bank D. And so then these people start discriminating against bank D as well. So it's just during good times, it works really well. But during bad times, the uh, counterparty risk shoots through the roof. All right. And if you are in a credit based system, you stop creating so much credit and the plumbing of the system starts to uh, get clogged up. So you don't have uh, I, I will bring back the reservoir analogy so you have a reservoir and you have an inlet inlet and an outlet right outtake if in bad times what happens with counterparty risk spiking and banks kind of lowering their uh, activity in the market what you have is a pinching of that inlet the clogging of the system is the you know the clogging of the repo market that's the squeezing that inlet and so the the amount of credit in the system will start draining because people still have to pay their debts, you know? Um, and that's deflationary. That's a deflationary pressure. Okay, so where else was he going with this? Um, so I agree with Jeff here on this. Um, at, when QE happens, what you do is you take valuable, you take valuable, useful collateral off of the bank's balance sheet and you replace it with non-fungible reserves and that handicaps economic activity so if anything it probably would turn out to be the other way around it at least penalizes future economic activity so uh, immediately when qe is happening it might like he says there's slightly a yes a positive ability for it to work the way they describe slight 600 billion 15 basis points um so there is a slight ability that way but once qe stops like the 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 overall damage done is to future economic activity because you've drained all those trillions of dollars worth of collateral out of the system 
So um, that's why we have these recurring things. So anyways, let's keep going here. Quantitative easing isn't inflationary. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, um, I understand the academic and, and factually correct argument, but then like, what does it mean to the average person? And so like, uh, how do we see this? So since 2008, we've had massive QE for the last decade or a dozen years, and we've seen stock markets and, and real estate go to all time highs. And so even if that hasn't affected the commercial banks to create more money, um, has it led into a wealth effect where my stock account, my retirement account's higher, my house is higher, I spend more money that's inflationary. Today we're seeing the opposite of that. Even though they haven't really done anything, people feel less wealthy today, they're spending less money. So if we, if we, if we, if we don't look at just the purely, you know, uh, like I said, uh, effects, uh, or if we take the total effects together, I mean, is there some causation or correlation there? There should be, and that's one of the theoretical channels for quantitative easing, and that's one of the reasons why the Federal Reserve and all central banks pay attention to the stock markets, because they believe they can manipulate stocks, and they're correct about that, into creating, as you said, Mark, the wealth effect. But there's no correlation between the stock prices and actual spending in any, in any economy. It's simply a theoretical uh, idea. You talk about academics. The wealth effect is, is more of an economic idea than any real phenomenon. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. And of course, why would there be? Just because that's a, your, your 401k goes up, you can't spend a 401k until you actually retire. Yeah, but look at... Now you might think, well, my 401k is up so I can spend other money because I don't have to save it, but that doesn't happen. It, there's no evidence, there's no data that shows it. And first, and more than that, the economic growth since 2008, Coming since, since the Fed started on quantitative easing, has been materially different than it had been before the pre-crisis. And by materially different, I mean much, much worse. So if there is a wealth effect, then it is, is not only undetectable, it's led us into a worse situation than we would have been had nothing happened in 2008. Mm. I, I don't know if I agree with that. And, and some of it is just gut, right? So like myself included, like I'm not going to retire for a long time, but right now the way the markets are. All right. So I agree with that. I think that one thing that's underestimated in human society and in economics in general, is a people don't consider a general feeling in the market. So that we, you know, we are individuals. We have individual valuations and subjective values, right? But there is also a kind of madness of the crowds thing here going on. There's a little bit of a hive mind, and if because everybody, individuals affect other individuals. We live in a society. Live in a society. So if you are an individual within a broader society where bad things are happening to the economics of that society, like credit is being uh, pinched, and so you, you know the economic growth, depending on the structure of your economy, economic growth is slow, that's going to affect you and it's going to affect your mind state and it's going to affect your valuations. Um, so you, the wealth effect is saying that the, it can somehow change the hive mind activity in, in the society, but it doesn't. Okay. The, we're in a bad time. And the only way that that would happen is if somehow the, the, we were able to get over the hump and start in an economic recovery then you could say there's a wealth effect because the economy is better than that. But there's no way that a wealth effect can fix the underlying issue of 
depression. And I, I use that term very broadly. Uh, I think a great example, and Mark Moss does bring it up here with antidepressants and stuff. So the, the society, when, when, I, when you think about a depression, it actually is a, a great term because people are just depressed. It doesn't have to be the textbook definition of massive deflation and massive growth, you know, negative growth, all that stuff. It could be simply no growth for 10 years. And no growth for 10 years is going to make your society depressed. People are going to be looking for answers, looking for strong men to provide them answers. It doesn't have to be huge negative numbers on GDP or anything like that. It, it just has to be a general malaise for a long period of time. Okay, let's uh, go on to the next section here. In game, which you had uh, alluded to, you think there's potentially a few more hikes coming before something breaks. We don't know what it is. We'll guess. And then they reverse course. So I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But before we jump into that, I want to talk about this uh, inelasticity of the money supply. So Here you talked go. about um, the, one of the failures of gold, specifically going into the Great Depression, was that the inelasticity of the money supply and then the need to kind of put the credit on top of that. Yeah. Um, am I framing that up correctly? Yeah, what we've seen throughout history was that inelastic money supplies always led to periods of hoarding. Well, first you got risk-taking bubble type behavior that eventually leads to hoarding with no ability to have elastic money supply that causes bank panics, destruction, economic destruction, demand destruction, deflation, and then depression. That happened repeatedly throughout history when, whenever we got into these, uh, these deflationary periods. And that's the reason why many countries turned to central banks, hoping that a public utility could provide an element of elasticity. Of course, that, that didn't prove to work very well, certainly in the Great Depression with the, uh, you know, the, the brand new Federal Reserve, you know, only 15 years into its history, and it leads to the worst economic calamity in history. So that didn't really settle the elasticity question either, but that's still, it's, we, on a fixed money or hard money system, we always have this defect where it leads to pooling and hoarding that produces some of the worst economic consequences. Well, it All right, so I think this is a little bit of causation correlation um, fallacy, it, because the reason why the reason why money gets more dear is because of the bad economic times. It's not that the the money getting dear causes the bad economic times; it's the other way around. There is a symptom. There's a common. These are these are two symptoms of a common disease. So there, there's a correlation, it's not causation. And I'll also say um, about this, well, let me just let him, let him talk because he, he has makes another point. It seems, though, to me is that um, it's, one, I would say booms and busts are a natural part of the world, right? We have seasons in life, and we, we're, we're humans, and so um, we like neon colors, and then next thing you know, they're out of fashion, and we just want white and black, for example, right? And people made too many of the neon clothes, and then fidget spinners are popular, and then people bought too many fidget spinners, and like, it just happens, right? So there's like natural cycles, and it seems like it's the creation of the money supply that creates this 
this artificial boom and then it's the restriction of the supply not continuing to grow at the same pace almost like a ponzi scheme that then seems to crash it and so maybe on a hard money system we would still have booms and busts which we've seen throughout hundreds of years of history but those booms and busts are small in comparison to the ever growing booms and busts that we have now under these artificially stimulated bubbles yeah, I don't, that's a tough question. It's in some in some ways it's a counterfactual because you can't go back and redo historical depressions and see how it worked out under under different circumstances. But as you said, Mark, the, the, there is a an, an innate human boom and bust cycle built within us, and I don't think we'll ever uh, ever solve that problem because there is no way to solve that problem unless humans can start working from perfect future information. Unless we do get crystal balls where we can tell the future. There's always going to be, as you said, there's always going to be sick cycles in fashion. There's going to be cycles in building. Uh, there's going to be too much risk taking, mm-hmm. whatever. Before Jeff continues here, um, I just want to say something about what Mark said about uh, the expansion of the money supply causes these booms and busts. And I, I don't think so. I know this is a Miesian thing about the Austrian business cycle, but I think it is the good times that cause credit expansion. So it's the boom that causes the credit expansion, not the credit expansion that causes the boom. And it's not semantics, okay? This is very important to understanding what's going on here. The driving force is not the money supply. The money supply is the dependent variable, okay? And the money supply actually is um, also dependent on the form of the money, the properties of the money and the properties of the structure of the financial system. And also the structure of our society. So the, the, money, the money expansion, the supply expansion, the elasticity, which Jeff is going to go through here, I think is dependent on, it's a dependent variable. It's not the thing that people manipulate to cause X, Y, Z. They think they can. That's the whole uh, conceit of the central planner and the conceit of the the central bank is they think they can manipulate the underlying cause of money expansion, monetary expansion, by tinkering with these little things. Okay, but they can't. They can only maybe cause a temporary effect around the edges. But the primary mover here is the general hive mind of the market. That is what the primary mover is. And no matter what they do, they cannot manipulate where the market is going. I mean, maybe very temporarily, like I said, around the margins uh, temporarily, but uh, overall we're, we're going in the direction. And that is dictated, I think, by the form of the money. Okay, so like the, the old adage that when you when the only tool you have uh, is a hammer everything looks like a nail right so that is that the tool actually forms your view of the world and forms your world your your whole outlook on life well if you have a tool that is credit based money it forms your whole outlook on the world it forms your whole society if if you have credit based money the problem is the elasticity that's what you see out there. If you have credit-based money, the problem is, uh, or growth comes from credit expansion and, and low growth comes from credit contraction. 
and depression and recession. So that when you look through, when you look at the world through a lens and when your hive mind of the market has this tool called credit-based money, you see the world differently and it also creates a different world. It does create a different world. Um, so that's what it's all about. You have, we have to shift back towards a looking through the world through a commodity money. And I'll get into that a little bit more, uh, how that happens and why that happens. Why has that happened? Why have we shifted towards credit-based money? It's not because of central planning. Central planning doesn't work. You know, the best laid plans of the central planner would have switched to credit-based money and there would have been hyperinflation. Like look at, look at, uh, you know, Venezuela or Argentina or some of these high inflation countries. It doesn't matter what the central planners want. They can't keep their money at the, the right valuation, right? So it's not about central planning. It's about what the hive mind of the market is doing. So let's continue. And I think and I fear most people nowadays have confused and conflated inelasticity or elasticity with something like too big to fail, which is, you know, sort of the quasi haphazard program that Ben Bernanke's Fed tried to put together in the wake of the first financial crisis. That's not elasticity. That was something else entirely. Elasticity is that when we go into a bust cycle, that we don't end up with a monetary shortage that then produces deflation. You can still have a bust cycle without the deflation that leads to the necessary um, uh, creative destruction, as Schumpeter mm -hmm. called it. We still want that to happen. We still want bad banks that have bad ideas, that give out bad loans to bad people. We want them to right. go out of business. But what we don't want to have happen, and what does happen during these deflationary depressions, is that when bad banks go out of business, it leads to good banks going out of business and good businesses going out of business at the same time because money becomes too dear. Everybody holds on to money and there's not enough liquidity in the economy that bad banks and good banks alike end up going out of business, which harms the economy, not just in the short run, but the long run. So the idea behind elasticity, the real idea behind elasticity, not too big to fail, is that we sort the good from the bad. And the only way to do that is to make sure the good, good firms and good banks have enough money, have enough liquidity available that they can survive any bust cycle. That's what Walter Badgett was talking about in the 19th century from the Bank of England. You know, you lend freely at high rates on good collateral. That was, that was, the, that was the central bank dictum of elasticity in currency. Now, central banks nowadays don't do that because they can't. They can't even define elasticity or they can't even define liquidity, let alone create elasticity. But still, that's the idea that I think that we need to be uh, come to terms with is that elasticity doesn't mean too big to fail. It means limiting the downside to only those who made big mistakes. All right. So lots to say here. Um, who decides what's a good bank and a bad bank? You know, do they have to be insolvent by 20%? Do they have to be insolvent by 1%? Maybe some people would say, hey, you are insolvent. You're still solvent, but you're on the precipice of being insolvent. You're a bad bank. You deserve to fail. Like, who gets to decide what is a good bank and a bad bank? I'll tell you, it's, it's the central planner. Okay, so that is a central planning uh, prescription here from Jeff Schneider. Uh, we, we can't have creative destruction if it's planned. 
You can have destruction, but then it's planned destruction. It's not creative. See, the idea about being creative destruction is it's untamed. It's wild. It's an evolutionary process. The world is not fair. Okay? The world is not fair. When you have some ecological disaster, like let's just say a volcano in Indonesia erupts, and the whole local wildlife, some really good monkeys and good bears and good whatever wildlife they have, birds, lizards, what other, what other kind of wildlife they have, whatever, they, those really good, that really good wildlife gets killed. It doesn't matter. Like the nature doesn't care if you're good or bad. That's why it's called creative. Because sometimes the things that you would think are the, and I'm getting here, I'm not yelling at Jeff, I'm just being emotional here, is that the, you know, it has to be creative. It has to be random. Or maybe not random exactly, but highly random, unplanned. And it's not the survival of the fittest, it's like survival of the luckiest. <laughs> In a way, right? I mean, it's not survival of the fittest, but... The, um, that would be my first thing is how do you know what's good and bad? And why the hell would you want to save something that you think is good, but the market thinks is bad? The market is the ultimate decider, right? What else do I have here? So, you're trying to allocate elasticity. And, and I, I, I would say Jeff, his response to this, um, and I know Jeff just as an acquaintance on interviewing him like three times um, and listening to all his stuff, of course. But Jeff's, I think, response would be, no, I want to design a money that has this inherent elasticity tool that serves the good banks and the good companies, but doesn't serve the bad companies. Well, I'm telling you that's impossible, okay? That's impossible. Because that is, that is not creative destruction. That is, that is uh, programmed destruction. So, um, it, it gets down to the structure, the structure of the system. So, I don't know how to put this very cleanly, but um, the, the structure, so with credit-based money, we built up the society, we built up the structure, and we built up this economy in a certain way. And then within that, then you have good and bad, let's say, okay? Good and bad banks, good and bad businesses, um, good and bad leverage, good and bad VCs, good and bad all this stuff, good and bad technology even. Uh, so within that, you have these things that are good and bad. But what if the entire structure is corrupt? And the, the entire structure that your society and your economy and your financial system is built on is the thing that's bad. It's going to get destroyed in creative destruction. Okay, so that's, that's what I'm saying here. When you, when you talk about elasticity, you know, what comes to my mind is when, when you have programmed elasticity changes, uh, 
is that it's like, okay, in the old days, right, they had these medieval towns, say, uh, or even 19th century or 17th century towns, and all these wooden houses are together, and they would have, the problem is that fires would catch really quickly down the whole block and burn half of the city down before you could put them out, right? So what, in my mind, what Jeff is saying by fixing the elasticity, he's like, we need a better bucket brigade. Let's get a better bucket brigade out here because we can solve this problem by getting a better bucket brigade instead of like the freaking planning and the structure of our city is wrong. We need to have fire breaks in the building code. We need to build, use different materials that don't just catch on fire. Like straw roofs are probably not a good idea for people, you know, like let's, let's not build our, our roofs out of straw anymore. So the structure needs to change, not a better bucket brigade of elasticity. So elasticity is a, uh, a weapon. It is a market, natural market force that is made to create like the changes in elasticity. And maybe I should define that, geez. So um, in a good time and credit is expanding very rapidly, that would be more elasticity. You know, the, the amount that the supply changes with demand. Highly elastic would be uh, more, a, little, a slight bit more demand leads to a lot more supply. And inelasticity would be a little bit higher demand does not lead to any more supply. That would be elastic, inelastic. And I would say that the credit-based system is coming onto a period of, of reverse elasticity. Okay, we're, we're bending backwards, actually. And that's not good. That's not good. Of course, commodity money doesn't have this problem because... It has a bottom floor on elasticity of the supply of the commodity. But credit-based money can deflate to zero. There is no floor. The floor to the elasticity uh, is zero. So the supply of money can be destroyed all the way to zero. But with commodity money, it can't be. There is that catch-all, right? That, that is the supply of the commodity. But anyway, so... Again, I think he does a good job here. Uh, at one point, I got an idea that he was thinking like, you know, I'm looking through this lens. And when you see this, you know, this is a problem with elasticity. And that's what I think it is. So we're looking, we all as a collective society are looking at these problems and especially the central bankers and the um, euro dollar system, the member banks in the euro dollar system, say they're not members, but just the banks in the euro dollar system. They look at the world through a lens of credit-based money, and they don't even know they're doing it. And if you hear those pops, that's my chair. You guys can sign up at bitcoinandmarkets.com and help me buy a new chair. But anyways, um, so we need to change our lens. All right, so that's, that's the end of the show. Uh, that's all I wanted to talk about. Um, he does say one thing here at the end, which I thought was pretty awesome, and that is uh, Mark... Ask them, what do you expect going forward? Like, are they just going to do exponentially higher and higher QE? Because, you know, in a credit bubble, 
you have to do exponentially higher credit, higher debt to get less and less a diminishing return or the same return because the returns are diminishing. Um, and he says, well, he kind of expects them to do what Japan did. They went to QQE, and that stands for qualitative and quantitative easing. So they did a lot, and they did specific targeted buys, like they started buying ETFs, and they started buying these other things. So that is what Jeff thinks is coming up in the next thing. They'll probably start doing more qualitative easing, along with quantitative easing, because we are in the footsteps of Japan. And when that happens, guys, when that happens, what's going to happen to Bitcoin? Oh, brother, Bitcoin is going to go through the roof, right? Bitcoin is going to go through the roof. So that is coming. QQE is coming to the United States. I agree with Jeff in that. And uh, that's going to send Bitcoin up to maybe seven digits. And it could happen in relatively short order. Everyone's talking about the Fed cutting in early 2023. Well, what if that's the case? They cut in 2023, they turn back on QE, and now they start QQE. I mean, this could happen before you know it. So uh, just buckle up. Things are about to get crazy out there. So anyway, thank you guys for listening. My name is Ansel Linder. I am the Rebel Bitcoiner. Check me out at BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Check out FedWatch on the Bitcoin Magazine YouTube channel. And check out my Telegram group. All right, guys. See you next time.